loads of love from Meryl. Um, for those of you who don't know, my wife at 52, she went back to grad school and uh, completed her master's in marriage and family therapy. The extent she went to to save our marriage. Um, uh, she's a fabulous therapist. And um, I spoke to her this morning, early local time. It was She just finished eight hours full of people who are broken. One of her clients, she is, is dying of cancer. And outside of Jesus healing her, uh, Meryl is walking her through her life and her death. These are not lightweight things. She sent loads of love. She finished grad school. She had 3,000 hours of supervised therapy, which means she will process all of her clients with a supervisor. She's 2,700 hours into that. So by May, she should be finished. And hoping next September, if Rob and the elders invite us back, even if it's just to have Meryl here, we would be delighted for her to come back. Um, proud of these young guys. Um, so privileged that God would bring these quality of guys just into our little community called Genesis in Orange County, and we really are having an adventure, which is fabulous. Um, I'm going to do something which I've not done before, uh, in that I'm going to take a scripture for which my ignorance will be way apparent, because uh, I'm not a botanist, I'm a theologian, poet, wordsmith, and so if I misrepresent some of the a botanical detail with accuracy. I'm asking for grace. But before we start, I have a little video clip to show you, please. Sound for the week behind my cathedral, the BNY Mellon Boat Races. This year sees the women's crew race on the Thames Tideway course for the first time in its history, racing on the same stretch of the Thames as their male counterparts. To get there, each crew member has balanced academic and sports commitments with early starts and intense training routines followed by their studies. There are sacrifices along the way, but the race gives something back, say those who train the athletes to perform. To achieve and to get into the blue boat or the bronze or even the lightweights, you need to be very organised. It's a demanding academic schedule here, and obviously the training programme requires land training in the gym and then water training into eating. So you have to be able to coordinate both aspects of your life and also on top of that probably have a little bit of a social life as well. And so that means you have to make choices all the time and you're having to think about what you're doing and to make good choices that mean you're going to be able to achieve the things you've prioritised. So they're very focused. It makes them very resilient because they are under an awful lot of pressure in terms of delivering a performance every time they turn up in the gym. Every time they are out training, they'll be required by the coaches to put in good performances. They are able to cope with those challenges as well of being viewed and tested, having instant feedback. It's not easy always being coached for an hour and a half and being required to improve and change what you're doing. You can't sit back. And that takes a certain sort of person to be able to deal with that. But actually, if you can, if you're resilient enough to take it, then you will improve. When God began to stir in our hearts to plant again, I was curious because I was 58. 
And uh, most church planting organizations will not sponsor a church planter who is older than 40. And I was 58. And so um, after some, uh, I, I love it when God kind of smiles at me, speaks in phrases rather than long, elaborate sentences. And the nudgings of God became more and more sustained. And um, one of the things that happened was that I found myself embedded in Acts 2, 36 to 47, the birth of the early church. I just read it over and over and over and over and over again. And I tried to let God creep behind my Afrikaner maleness, creep behind my 30, then 35 years or something of leading churches, creep behind my own prejudice and preferences. And I had to say, God, is there anything you wanted to teach me that I, you know, the problem when we get older is that we have answers. We've lost questions. We lost the ability to ask questions because the moment someone starts speaking, we open file 14, pull out the answer, open the file, give the answer. And I was petrified that I would do that. That here in, in Orange County, Costa Mesa, we would be establishing this little community on a journey, and I would, I would lean upon my file referencing system to uh, find the answers. And uh, a phrase that has begun to ring through my heart over the last period of time has been this idea that Christianity is a team sport. Now, you must understand, Southern California is driven by three ideas. And there are more, but three ideas. One is rampant individualism. In other words, it's my world, the way I think, the way I do life. Uh, people are lovers of self. Um, the second thing is that there's the pursuance, or rather the, the insatiable materialism. Just buy more stuff all the time. And then the third is the pursuance of pleasure. So individualism, materialism, and pleasure govern Southern California. Those are the idols, those are the demons that shape and fashion our community. So you can imagine stepping into a story where we're trying to create community, it's incredibly difficult. And so the idea that Christianity is a team sport began to filter through me. So I started going to YouTube about other places and just read and listen and watch. And this caught my attention, partly because my daughter Dana when she was studying at Biola University, went to Oxford, did a year at Oxford studying uh, C.S. Lewis, and she said, Dad, I've got to go and row for an Oxford rookie row team. Now, if you know Dana, she does everything passionately. She is radical in her commitment. She said, Dad, 5 o'clock in the morning on the Thames with gloves and beanies, and you cannot get warm, and you have to break the ice open to be able to get going that early in winter on the Thames. And she waxes very lyrical about the first duck that they killed on the Thames as they were rowing. I don't know where she sat in the sequence of rowers, but where she sat as they were pulling their way through. And she said, Dad, the next minute there was just feathers and, and some creature came tumbling past them to meet their eternal death. And they realized they'd probably just killed one of the Queen's ducks. But, but when we look at this, it's very, very fascinating because a few things come to mind instantly. And the first is that you can't just go and row. You have to be chosen and positioned by the row master, coach, or trainer into a space. I've just finished reading a book called The, uh, the Boys in the Boat about the 1936 American rowing team in Berlin 
just before the Second World War and how they were put together. And a very curious book, a very amazing book. And it wasn't the biggest or the strongest men that got onto the rowing team. The coach put them under incredible pressure, scrutinized them. They had to maintain academic standards because they were all from Washington State University. They had to maintain academic standards. They had to forfeit their social life. They weren't allowed to party, drink, or smoke. They had to be in the water before school. They had to go into the water after school. Even storm conditions, they had to go out there into the, um, uh, I forget the area right now, and go out there and practice. Now, folks, I want us to understand something quite sublime here because God, um, I think this is quite a sublime examination of God molding a team together. It's interesting. It's led by a cox, the little person normally. They're not necessarily the best rower, the strongest. They're certainly not the biggest, the tallest, the most capable. But they've got a very unique role to play. And part of what it is, is that all the rowers have their back to the goal. None of them can see the goal. None of them can see the line that gets crossed. Every one of them has to trust that the cox knows what he or she is doing They can read the team, who is strong today, who is weak today, who is focused today, who is distracted. They are chosen for their people management and their ability to keep the boat balanced to cross the finish line first. In fact, one author who I read, who was himself an Olympic rower, said this, the key to a fast boat is balance, balanced weight, timing and balanced pressure. It turns out that pulling as hard as you can, please hear me, without pulling together actually slows the boat down. Imbalanced power will veer the boat one direction and throw off the timing of the catch and the release. Uncontrolled straining at the oar can tip your weight left or right and toss the boat side to side. A successful team, Bruce Eltfield says, pulls in perfect balance and with perfect timing. In, pull, out. Perfect timing. Totally sensitive to the person in front of you and listening for the person behind you. It is absolutely everything that is contrary to Southern Californians' idols that drive a society in selfishness and self-preoccupation. Is it not interesting that God, who is our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is the perfect rowing team? Rowing together in perfect harmony. I'm going through John as my devotional reading. Jesus said, I do nothing of my own initiative, only that which I see my Father do. What you see me do, my Father is doing. Just turn me down a little bit. I feel like it's popping. Thanks. I'm loud. What's that? Okay, thank you. Gives this incredible picture. The second picture is the husband and wife. God says it's not good for man to be alone. The very notion of, and and listen, those of you who are single, celebrate your singleness. I, I think it's a fabulous chapter. Paul said it's kind of the cool chapter of your life, and I want to say enjoy every moment of it. That's cool. It's cool. When you get married, enjoy that chapter for what it is. But the most glorious marriage that we all hang, hunger for is what? Even in my darkest moments, Meryl and I, and we've had them in our, 
38 years of marriage, the only picture that drove us forward was not some verse or scripture or I. It was the picture that one day in our 80s, we'd walk hand in hand on the beach speaking how wonderful God has been to us and to our children. See, Christianity is a team sport. And there is such a sublime deconstruction that's being driven. Now, remember that it's not just a Southern California melody. It's now through the Internet available around the world wherever American cultural imperialism has taken root. And the deconstruction that's happened is that, oh, no, I don't need church. I don't need community. I don't need togetherness. I don't need us. It's just me and Jesus. It is the biggest, as a father, heartache that I face in the body of Christ. And in Southern California, and I use it purposefully because I'm not an authority on the Middle East or from the country you come from. So I can use the context in which I've been ministering for 22 years. But I want to tell you the church is weak, incredibly weak, fragile in its weakness, incapable of dealing with the challenges of America because of rampant individualism. Don't you tell me what to do. Don't. And I do not have to be in community. I don't. I will just pursue Jesus in my own way. And, I, and I'm astounded to be just a fragile, honest moment where we have young guys who lead worship in five or six different churches. Every Sunday they're leading worship in another church. Or a husband who will be preaching in this church, his wife will be preaching in that church, and they are never in the same church on any given Sunday. You know, folks, I would not make that person a leader in my church. And it's not a grumpy Chris. I'm not an angry person. But there is something glorious about Christianity being a team sport, where God in His glorious wholeness, His trifold wholeness, operates together in perfect balance. The husband and wife who are most apt, who are loving the journey most, is where a husband and wife are rowing together in perfect harmony. Both this far, the, the oars above the water. They were interviewing the Italian guy uh, who got silver in the, world, in the Olympics. And they said, what happened? You lost by this much. Years and years and years of training to get a silver by this much. And the only difference that they could scrutinize between the Italians and the Americans who won was that there was one Italian rower who lost concentration during the race and missed his beat. One guy out of eight, over a whatever kilometer distance it was, lost his concentration and his rhythm, and they got a silver instead of a gold. So, having said all of that, I want you to turn to Isaiah 60, please. I hope that wasn't too harsh or too tough. I'm just a passionate guy. I am about my family. I love my wife. I love my three kids. Well, five now. My girls are married. Um, and uh, Tian's off San Diego. He's at university there. And I absolutely love my family unit. I'm fiercely protective about things that may hinder my family. Um, I, I said to Tian as a, as a little guy, you know the Orange County thing? I have, think I've said it here before. I said to him, T, I will always be honest with you. Southern, Cal Southern California, you know, at the end of a soccer game with these little ikes, the moms and dads are on the side, well played, you know, just lost 7-0. Well played, well played. And I'm thinking, why are you lying to them? You, you don't play well and lose 7-0. 
So my promise to Keon is a hamburger after every game, and we will debrief the game, green and red. And he will start, what did I do well, and what did I do badly? See? Because, folks, Southern California kids cannot take a hit on the chin. They cannot take a rebuke. The moment you rebuke them, they scatter. And I want my boy to grow up with that sense of dad looking him across the table as he has a double-double in and out burger with all the stuff. And my boy, you did so well in this, but you sucked there. There was a 20-minute stretch in the game. You weren't in it. Where were you? Actually, Dad, I was just thinking about my home. And boy, for your team's sake, you can't lose it. Are you with me? Okay. Enough said. I've made my passionate point. I hope you hear it. If that is you, please let the Spirit of God speak to you today. Church is hard work sometimes. It's tiring. It's boring. I mean, let's be honest. I have to ask myself sometimes, if I wasn't a preacher, would I come? I mean, I would. I, I, I just ask myself, would I come? And we're planting a community now. So is this a community I would really like to be at? There are many reasons why we can just scatter. But boy, is there something exquisite. So I turned 60 and I hated every minute of it. I did. Every birthday I've had, I've loved, but 60 just sounded like a lot of numbers. It's just like, oh my word, how many zeros can you add to a number? And I, and I really was. I was not a happy camper for the first time in my life, and I'm an optimist. And, and uh, Meryl kind of looked and said, Chris, are you for real? I mean, are you really grumpy about this? And I said, babe, I really am. I, I cannot get the victory. Uh, keep what I said earlier on about rowing and tension for just a moment. And I said, uh, and she said, I think you better find the victory there. I know, I know. So I just went back, and I thought, how can I get the victory for an age I don't want to turn. It just feels really old. Oh, by the way, I still play soccer every Wednesday, David. Thank you. Thank you. still play soccer. I'm about 40 years older than the next person, but I still play every Wednesday. And um, so I went to every chapter in the Bible that has 60 in it or verse. I thought, I, I'm going to find the victory here somehow. And as I was prepping for you, I did think of this, so let's dive in, holding that rowing thing in tension for just a moment. Isaiah 60, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Behold, darkness will cover the earth, thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you, and the glory, His glory, will be seen upon you, and nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They will come to you. Your sons will come from afar. Your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Then, then you shall see and be radiant. Then your heart will, shall thrill and exult because the, the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you and the wealth of the nations shall come to you. Hold that. Run to the end of the chapter quickly, please. Um, picking up through midway 20. For the Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of mourning shall be ended your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands. I think the NIV says uh, planting, what's it? Uh, planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will do things swiftly. Quickly, prophetic interpretation, just for some of you. I really want to say this morning with as much prophetic edge as I have, for some of you that first verse is why you are here. Arise, shine, for your light has come, for the glory.
glory of the Lord has risen upon you. See, darkness has covered the earth. See, ladies and gentlemen, darkness is the traveling companion of every believer. Please don't think you will avoid it. St. John of the Cross in 1152 wrote that phrase that's now become popular where he speaks about the dark night of the soul. None of us are exempt of it. Even Jesus had the dark night of the soul when he cried out to God, Is it possible? Can you take this cup from me? And this rah-rah Christianity that is just kind of uh, very poor pop psychology thrown onto Christian stages, splashed with a verse of Scripture. Let's us believe that somehow we can always win and we're always in life and God is always victorious. Ladies and gentlemen, when Jesus was on the cross, God was not victorious. And there are moments in your life and mine where God is not victorious. And there are things that you and I will learn in the dark night of the soul that we will not learn in the light. Man, I hated that idea. I wanted to preach against it from the top of my lungs until I went through the dark night of the soul where no counseling could carry me, no verse of Scripture could sustain me. The only knowledge I had was that God was sovereign. Nothing anyone else said could sustain me. And I realized that every man and woman, as our Messiah did, so shall we. We shall also partake in that part of our inheritance, which is the dark night of the soul. But here's the good news. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. There comes that day when you pass the curtain, and it's not night that, that, that continues, but the dawning of a new day that begins to smile upon you. Fear not the dark night of the soul, but learn what you need to learn as quick as you can so that God can move on with you. And then this beautiful passage at the end, you're a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. I am the Lord, and it's time I will hasten. Can I also say, that's the story of Meryl in my life. God holds out, holds out, holds out, and suddenly, boom, 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 in His time, He moves swiftly. Those of you who are control freaks really struggle with God, don't you? You want long-term planning? He's not really that interested in it. You want to remain control of all the detail in every way? He's really not that interested in it. Because when that sun rises, the new dawn, he does things swiftly. I could tell you story after story, but time is never the friend of the preacher. And then this is the verse that I want to draw your attention to and stay there just for the last 15 minutes or so. Are you with me? Christianity is a team sport. Be sure that you're alone in divinely inspired solitude for brief moments, but the overriding narrative of your life is by the side of. Now, into that context comes this verse, verse 13. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, or the juniper, and the pine, or the fir, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious, says the Lord. Now, here's my point. Here is my point. Thank you for letting me preamble quite a bit here. I got stuck on those verses. And uh, I'll cross-reference it just for a quick. You don't, you don't have to turn there. But Isaiah 41 says it this way. Same idea. And that's why I'm not a botanist but a theologian. So if my interpretation is wrong here, please bear with me. 41, 41. 
I, the Lord, will answer them. I am the Lord of Israel. I will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water, the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, the olive, the cypress, the plain, or the juniper, and the pine. They may see and know and may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. Now, ladies and gentlemen, what am I trying to say here? The imagery the prophet gives us is that God brings together a a collection of botany, a collection of plant life, tree life, shrubbery that do not naturally grow together. The joy and the wonder, the mystery and the miracle of community is that God puts plant life together that do not naturally grow together. Where God is, firstly, there is life. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the step of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor in the company of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. He meditates on this law day and night. That man is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose life does not wither. Whatever they do, they prosper. So I was prepping for this time which I generally don't do ahead of time. I generally get to a city, feel it out, and then start preaching. But as I've prepped for this time, I felt a few things. I've mentioned some of them already. Where God is, life thrives. The second thing I want to say in that context is where God plants you, life thrives. Now, here's the deal. Again, contrary to popular mindset, is we don't choose where he plants us. In 1990, Meryl and I were in Hong Kong. Forgive me for those who've heard this story. And God speaks into our heart and he says, you will spend the rest of your days abroad. We came away being absolutely persuaded we would live in Hong Kong. We planted church there. We got our families together. We were still leading Glenridge. Got our two families together, told them, we're planning a church in Hong Kong, snorting prana for the Afrikaners, lots of tears and heartache. We're going. Six years later, we end up in L.A. In his time, he does things swiftly. Why? For eight years, I hated Los Angeles. Hated Los Angeles. Every time I would come in to fly to LAX, it took 20 minutes from Palm Springs, coming in to land. I think Stan will correct me if I'm wrong, but that's my estimation of it. My chest would grow more and more tight. I would get more and more tense, more and more anxious as I came to land. And every single day, I pleaded with the Lord. I said, please take me out of L.A. And it was one of those times when I looked at him, and and it was like he said, I will if you want me to, and I knew I would lose something, ladies and gentlemen. I did not love the city we loved, we, we lived in. I did not love any aspect of the life that God had crafted us into. But, but using this text as an application, here it is. Where God plants you, you will thrive. It may not be a place of your choosing. It may not be a people of your choosing. It, it may not be a context of your choosing. But it is God who does the planting. In 1986, I was in a Middle Eastern country, and I was driving through the desert in a bus, and we came around a corner, and there was this light in the middle of the desert. And I got off the bus, 
and uh, Wolf tossed a young man who had dug a deep hole. And um, I, I asked him, and there was kind of some brokenness in our communication. I said, what are you doing here? He said, I'm busy preparing the soil for roses. I said, but this is a desert. Roses don't grow in the desert. He said, I know. That's why I have to wash it seven times. I said, show me. And he went through the process of washing the soil seven times to produce the roses. As I came around the corner, there were rose bushes aplenty, and the flowers were as exquisite and the fragrance as compelling as any rose I had ever seen. But it required seven washings and seven plantings for it to become the rose that was as exquisite and as fragrant as that. Ladies and gentlemen, God will plant you a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. Please hear me. I know, and this is not being funny, I know Rob's going to irritate you, guaranteed. Well, how do I know that I've been married for 38 years? You meet Meryl, you think she is an angel for the world to see. But I know in the morning when I go through and I bring her a mug and she wakes and she looks at me, but she's not awake and she's grumpy and she hasn't smiled. And I'm the buoyant positive. Come on, let's do this life. And she's like, huh? I can tell you that if my wife who irritates me and I who irritate her, I know this as a guaranteed reality that whichever community I lead or Rob or Mike or anyone else leads, we will irritate the heck out of each other somewhere along the line. God will guarantee it because the soil has to be washed seven times. And then people say, oh, no, I'm leaving this place. I'm going. I mean, do you know what Rob said on Sunday? No, but I can guess. Or do you know what Chris said on Sunday? Or whatever the case. Ladies and gentlemen, the idea that God, the gardener, in his meticulous, intimate way, gathers plants and he puts this collection together that do not naturally coexist. What do men do? We plant plantations, don't we? Mpumalanga, eastern South Africa, row upon row of pines, row upon row of banana trees, row upon row of sameness. And God doesn't say, I will create a plantation of sameness. God says, I will bring together a jungle in the desert that will be made up of little shrubs to big tall trees, and it will be for the display of my glory. People will say, they should not live together. But look at what God has done. God is mysterious. God is glorious. God is amazing. When I looked at the seven plants, how am I doing time-wise? Okay, I've got a few moments. You still with me? You don't mind my passion, I hope. All right, here are some of the seven plants that God put together in Isaiah 41. The first is the plane tree or the chestnut. It's a tree frequently found in Israel on the coast and in the north, and it gets its name from the Hebrew word which means naked. So what kind of jungle can we find in a desert? The first kind is a community, if I can butcher botany with theology, is nakedness. Those who walk in transparency and honesty and are not held captive to external pious pretense. So two weeks ago, we left our son in San Diego. 19, I love him to bits. He was the son 
born to me in my old age. I was 40, almost 41 when he was born. Love him, he's, he's about my height, long surfer hair, super chill. I mean, he's just go surfing with these guys. I mean, he, I just love my boy to bits. Miss him like crazy every day as I miss my kids. So we say goodbye on a Saturday night. We drive home, the car's very quiet. Very quiet. Meryl cannot go into his bedroom. Sunday night, we have our community. We always eat together first. Meryl cooks up a storm. She arrives just in time for us to eat. Unbeknownst to me, she parks her car in the parking lot a little further away. She gathers herself, puts up on her makeup, and I quote, I put my game face on. She walks into the warehouse where we gather for our meal, and Sam, one of the beautiful young ladies in the church, runs up to her, not knowing any of this, puts her arm around Meryl, and says, Meryl, it's so wonderful to see you. I have a gift for you. And at that point in time, Meryl is God's. God says to Meryl, I told you, I don't want a game face on. So I preach. When I'm finished preaching, Meryl says, can I say something? Now, you must remember, that's completely out of character for my wife. Normally, I should beg her to come and say something. She doesn't like the limelight. Fabulous one-on-one, reluctant one-on-many. I said, my babe, please. She comes up. She tears up and tells the congregation the story. She said, I wanted to lie to you. I wanted to put my game face on. I put my makeup on. I wanted to, hi, great to see you. Welcome. And it would have all been a lie because actually I was hurting. I was missing my boy like crazy. See, ladies and gentlemen, when God puts the jungle in the desert, he takes this idea, this plain tree, which means nakedness. And he puts together a community of honesty and transparency where there is no room for dishonest self-preservation, self-presentation. How are you doing? Oh, great. No, be honest. No, really, I'm not doing great. I'm missing my boy like crazy. I know I shouldn't, and I know it's right, and he's 19, and he's got to go and face the world out there. But I still miss him. I don't want to go into the bedroom. I don't want to go and sit on his bed. I don't want to see the pictures that are gone. I don't want to see the closet or T-shirts or jeans that aren't there. When God creates a jungle in the desert, he puts together people in which transparency and nakedness is an honest reality. The cedar tree. The cedar tree is a strong tree used for boards and pillars and ceilings. It was used in the making of the temple and the king's palace. Now, Chris, what does that mean to us? Well, can I suggest it's those who are solid, please hear me, dependable, and who are foundations who may never get celebrated. I don't walk into a building, forgive my neither architectural nor decor eye. And I don't walk in and say, wow, these cedars are amazing. I mean, they, I don't do that. I'm so sorry I don't do that. But there's some of you that God places in a community who are solid, stable, reliable, dependable, essentials to building this church. The problem is sometimes we grow weary in doing good. And then we get our heart twisted because of lack of recognition and applause. 
25 years, to be honest with you, I gave my life to the church planning movement from the age of 25 to 50. When we started, there were seven churches. When I left, we were in over 60 countries. I can tell you everything I did is irrelevant. When I left, there wasn't a thank you word, note, or email. In fact, the only thing that happened is I seemed to be dropped off everyone's list. The phone grew quiet, the emails were quiet, and I became exempted. After every birthday I missed, every anniversary I missed, every I never saw my daughter run or swim in a swim meet. They said she was a really good swimmer. I never saw her swim in a swimming competition once. See, suddenly I was measuring my dependable, reliable, steadfast loyalty by the applause I wasn't getting and my heart turned on me. That which was my friend became my enemy. There was a question from Meryl, you wise ask, I, I hate you wise men, but, but, but the question Meryl asked me one day, she said, Chris, did you do it as unto the leader of the movement or did you do it as unto the Lord? And when I got angry, I knew because I did it for applause and affirmation, I didn't do it as unto the Lord. You see, cedars are never looking for applause. Cedars, strong, dependable, steadfast, do it as unto the Lord. Now, I want to say to some of you cedars in this community, you are sorely needed. We apologize for not celebrating you often enough, well enough. But can you forgive our silence? And can you hear the din of heaven's applause? No doubt. jungle in the desert full of cedars. Not big mouth. And the moment you want to, no, sorry, I can't. I'm going to lean on Chloe now. I can't. No, 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 no. Cedars. Cedars. Time's running out, Rob. I don't think I can cover all these Commentators, I had to refer to, sorry, no pun intended. Um, I, they're cleverer than I am. But they said the fir tree was curious because it was often planted along roads and homesteads. And it's for me those who keep us safe in mobility. Change is here to stay, ladies and gentlemen. We love to preach the cloud is moving. We just hate how it lives, don't we? They preach us so well. Cloud is moving. We relocate, we move, we change jobs, change homes, sometimes have to change friends again. You know, one of the most difficult things to plant at 58 is I looked at Meryl and I said, Baby, do we have the energy to start brand new friendships again? We're going to look in a room and know no one. And then we're going to look at us and say, Can I be a friend? She's a therapist, and I'm 58, or I was then. I've crossed over to the dark side. I don't have energy to be your friend. 
work for you are those who bring safety when they're vulnerable. Who bring that reassurance. The cloud is moving. Things are changing. God is asking us to fill up the slates. God is asking us to fold up the tent again. God is asking us to, to muscle the children and the sheep and the goats, those who are behind us and those who complain about everything. Oh, I hope if you were complaining, you stopped. Oh, I'm going to pray for a special place in heaven for you. Place full of grace. Um, and I just, when God murmurs us, when the wind of God blows change on us, there are those who rise in the community. It's coffee, lunches, phone calls, text messages, emails, and words of stability. We are moving. You're all moving, aren't you? I, I, I envy you. I honestly do. I try to empty my church every five years. I've got it right with Glenridge. I almost got it right with Southridge. We planted 12 churches in 14 years and fought two lawsuits during that time. I can really praise the Lord on that. But this one, we'll get it right. Empty the church every five years. I am so uh, envious that all of you are moving on. Such a free thing. Everyone will leave this church in obedience, in rebellion, or in a box. Everyone's leaving. It's how we manage these moments that are huge. Let me land. Time is flying. I've got, to, I've got to bring it to close. The three things quickly as we land. The first is this. Can I ask you for those to whom this is imperative to surrender to the pain and privilege of being planted by the Lord? You know how many floating Christians there are unplanted in Southern California? I was told a number of two million. Can you imagine driving through a desert and seeing two million palm trees that have fallen over? Pines, firs, cypress, just floating. Nashville. Like Florence, except North Carolina right now. Just trees fallen over everywhere. And with great pride, no one tells me what to do. But they lie there dying, isolated. Is there a possible surrender in your heart for the pain and privilege of being planted by God? Secondly, to embrace and accept the place where He plants you. Your family unit, your church community. Honestly, it's beautiful. I've got this little community. These guys are such heroes of mine. I'm the only six-year-old. Meryl's the only 56-year-old. Kevin, who flies for FedEx, is the only 46-year-old. His wife, Ariette, who's from Pretoria, is the only 42-year-old. I think we've got three couples who's 32, 33. I say to these guys, why are you with us? I'm a grandpa. I'm gray. My hairline's receding. I'm fighting the belly. They are cool, hip, sick pastors in town. But they can't get away from me, and I can't keep them. God's planted us together. We planted together. Tyler walks into my house, opens the fridge. The 
gets a banana, gets a peanut butter. What's up, Chris, as he munches away on my food that I bought with my money? And I love him, and he's got engaged since Neil was here last time. So that is very cool. So will you surrender to be planted by God? Will you embrace where he plants you? And can I ask, lastly, that you open your heart to letting God nourish you where you are. He says he brings water in the desert. Oh, this is a desert church. Boy, God brings water in the desert. That's his speciality. He's really good at that. You can't say, oh, it's because such a dry place. Yep. I feel so lonely. Yep. I feel like no one understands me. Yep. God specializes in bringing water to places just like this. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer, please? Sorry I went quite deep there. Christianity is a team sport. Who's God got you to row with? Great jungles in the desert. Where has he planted you? Because that's where you will thrive. Even if it's difficult. Open your hands if you don't mind. Put them on your lap. I'm in Southern California now. You can see we do things very inoffensive. Father, what a great community. What a great story. 17 years ago in the house of a pilot, Mike and Charmaine joined this random collection of individuals. And 17 years later, and thousands upon thousands of people who pass through this community en route to other shores, other adventures, other places, other communities. What a God story. But now it's our turn. Now we are the planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. Now we are the diverse plants and shrubs and trees. You haven't called for a plantation of monocultural, mono-aged people that look successful, but they're not jungles in the desert. They're culture-driven uniformists. Thank you for every man, woman, boy, and girl that you're planting here now. For those who are struggling, Lord, I'm, as a father, particularly run, but there's no water out there, but this is where we find it, in this city, in this community, at this time, with weaknesses, warts and all, thank you, thank you, we create jungles in the desert, we want to be in the center of where you plant us, we don't want to be an uprooted tree, lying somewhere, so proud of our individuality, we want to be by the Lord.